kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Prowler, released October 9th, 1981. It was written by Glenn Leopold and Neil Barbera, with additional dialogue from Eric Lewald, Mark Edward Edens, and Michael Edens, with a contribution from Sarah Higgins, directed by Joseph Zito, and released by Sandhurst. Sandhurst? <laughs> Who the hell is Sandhurst? That that sounds like a like a made up. Yeah, that's a that's a made up company. It's like the desert version of Hearst. Also, it sounds like there's way too many cooks in that kitchen. Yeah, too many names. Director Zito initially intended to shoot where the film takes place in Avalon, California, but switched to Cape May, New Jersey for its ghost town quality. Under the working title Graduation, the film shot six days a week for six weeks, with entire days dedicated to the photography of Tom Savini's incredible gore effects. The budget topped out somewhere between $500,000 and $1 million, which is honestly incredibly cheap for what they put together. I'm inclined to believe it cost more than 750000 because that's how much Avco Embassy offered to distribute, but director Zito turned it down because he was afraid he might lose money on the deal. Instead, he toured a smaller run of prints for a series of limited regional releases. Unfortunately, even running the film independently, it did not make back its $1 million price tag. Because of Savini's graphic gore effects, the prudish gatekeepers of European theatrical releases made significant cuts to the film and put it in theaters with the title Rosemary's Killer, presumably to imply some connection to Rosemary's Baby. The German title is The Pitchfork of Death. That's a better title. It yep. is. It also got an American re-release in 83 with the European title and then an illegal re-release in 1984 retitled Pitchfork Massacre. Illegal because the prints were not rented out by the filmmakers, but some unknown third party who kept all the profits from the re-release. Huh. They literally just were like, I have this movie, let's rent it out to theaters and keep all the money we get from it. Weird. The film opens with a movie time newsreel announcing the Queen Mary's return from Europe carrying 14,526 vets from World War II. The deck looks insanely crowded with men. The narrator of the newsreel seems to focus on the negative details, like the fact that many of these men were traumatized by war, and many more were likely dumped by their girlfriends while serving overseas. We dissolve from a plea to buy war bonds to a handwritten letter. This is the only contribution of that last name in the writing credits, Sarah Higgins. She wrote this letter, and that was her contribution to the writing. Really? Yeah. And she got a credit for that. Interesting. Yep, on screen. March 12th, 1944. I don't know how to tell you this. I really don't want to hurt you, but I just can't wait for you any longer. I know I promised to wait. I really did try. But it's been so much longer than either of us expected. So much has happened, and you're so far away. I hope you understand how I feel. I know I said I loved you, but I'm young, and I have to live my life now. And who knows how long it will be before you return. I hope you don't hate me for leaving you this way. But 
Perhaps when the war is over, we can be friends again. Please take care of yourself. I continue to worry about you. Sincerely, Rosemary. What was the date on this letter again? The date was March 12th, 1944. Okay. So it's before the end of the war. Right, right. The Y in Rosemary has been sketched to resemble a rose. We dissolved to a hotel in Avalon Bay on June 28th, 1945, the night of the graduation dance. By the way, I'm sure the title graduation was changed to avoid confusion with graduation day, which came out earlier this season. The building we see here was at the time called the Colonial Hotel, now the Inn of Cape May, and when it rained on the set, the streamers decorating the building accidentally dyed the building's distinctive white paint, and it had to be repainted when they wrapped. Oh man, I was just uh, I was just seeing something about that. That like tissue paper. Um, I'm sure streamers are the same thing. Like if yeah. tissue paper gets wet, it is like permanent dye that'll stain yep. anything that tissue paper is on. Yeah. A serviceman, Pat Kingsley, opens the door for his date, and they enter the party together. On the way up the steps, they needlessly bring up a couple named Linda Booth and Georgie Wise, who recently broke up. We'll see a different George later in the film, but neither Linda nor George Wise will ever come back to the story, which is annoying. Don't talk about people who I'm not supposed to care about yet, please. <laughs> right, and, and at least introduce who you are, because yeah. I don't know who you are yet, and you're talking about other people. <laughs> Another couple are standing behind the punch bowl inside, and the girl, the Rosemary who wrote the Dear John letter, recognizes serviceman Pat Kingsley. She says he just came home from serving in the Pacific Theater. Rosemary's boyfriend is unimpressed and drags her across the dance floor away from the soldier. As they cross the room, he reacts as though someone has grabbed his girlfriend, but we don't really see anything happen. They're just crossing the floor and she kind of bumps into a guy. Hey, keep your mitts off my girl. Rosemary says the guy who grabbed her was Jimmy Turner, the caretaker. Jimmy will also barely return to the story. Really glad we're giving these characters first and last names that we almost don't see. The jealous boyfriend, who will come to know as Roy, loads his girl into a car out front and then drives her out to a quiet field. Back in the party, Kingsley seems to have abandoned his date, and she asks someone where he went, but they don't know. Did you see where Pat went? Sorry. Roy walks his date to a gazebo at the end of a dock where they start kissing. This gazebo is located at the Seaville United Methodist Church in Seaville, New Jersey, and it's still there. I found it this morning, just on a long walk. (laughs) I googled it. Suddenly, we see someone in army boots carrying a pitchfork trudging along the shore of the lake. We see an insert of a machete, and then the lights cut out on the gazebo. Roy's girl is a little freaked out, but he calms her down, and soon they're back to kissing. Suddenly, the man with a pitchfork stabs it completely through the couple, who bleed out, skewered together on the gazebo. We cut from the dying couple back to the party. Hey! You alive out there? Yeah! Well, let's hear it! The killer puts a rose in the girl's dead, bloody hand, which is why this movie should have been called The Gardener. If you were a murderer, what would your nickname be? Mine would be The Gardener, because I'd always leave a rose at the scene of the crime. Mm. It's from the IT crowd. (laughs) We dip to black for the title card and then come back up in Avalon Bay again, June 28th again, 1980, preparing for the graduation dance 35 years later to the day. A couple girls, Lisa and Sherry, are hanging a banner on the same building announcing a graduation dance for the class of 1980. A cop, Deputy Mark London, walks up and teases the girls about the sign being crooked, but it seems like he's just flirting. But this is a college, right? Right, yeah. It just seems, I mean, I don't remember there being big college dances. Yeah, I don't really either. But different schools are different things. Yeah. They had dances at Hogwarts, right? Is that a college or a high school? 
I guess they're kind of high school kids, huh? Yeah. yeah. Is there a magic college? Do you go and get your degree after, or or is it just a gen ed for magic? I have no idea. Yeah. Another girl, Pam, the editor of the school paper, walks up with the graduation issue, and Mark London invites her to lunch to take a look at it. We cut to the police station where the same girl tells Sheriff Frazier that they haven't had a graduation dance since the murder we saw because Major Chatham said no. They haven't had a graduation dance since 1945 because Major Chatham wouldn't allow it. Do you guys recall the last time we had an annual dance canceled for decades because multiple deaths occurred? Ooh, uh, yeah, that was the one with the mine and the, the bloody, my, my bloody Valentine. Harry Warden said no Valentine's dances after the mine cave in and consequent cannibalism <laughs> in My Bloody Valentine. Well, after all, the first Valentine's dance in 20 years has to be something special. In this case, Major Chatham is the one telling them they can't have a dance, and they're only having it now because he recently suffered a stroke and can't stop them anymore. <laughs> was he literally, like, standing in the way of a dance before? Like, they weren't just doing it because he said no, they were doing it because he would fight them off? Yeah, like, <laughs> he would just show up armed? I mean, I bet Lawrence Tierney would just show up with a gun and be like, no, you're not having this dance. We also learn here that Major Chatham is the father of the girl we saw pitchforked, the Rosemary. The sheriff tells Pam that a store was robbed nearby, and the criminal is still at large. The sheriff says he's leaving town for a fishing trip, and the deputy will be in charge for the weekend of the graduation dance. Over lunch later, Pam finally shares the latest issue with Deputy Mark London, who seems to be her boyfriend, or at least a good friend. She also invites him to the dance, but understands he'll be on duty in the sheriff's place for the weekend. She tells Mark that she's worried the perpetrator of the nearby robbery might come to town. She asks him to please be careful. Why would you be worried about a guy who robbed a store in the next town over coming here? He's He robbed a store. He was taking money. I don't know. He's not going to come here and attack the police. What are that's, you talking that's about? That's true. I, I guess I was thinking back to like other other movies where we've had people escape insane asylum yeah that would be that would make more sense if it was someone broke out of an asylum yeah Yeah. but the situation here is a guy robbed a store well he robbed the store but he also shot someone or cut someone cut cut someone up pretty bad and i guess her fear would be if he catches him and tries to stop him he could get cut up yeah okay that would be my guess still weird do you guys recall the last time there was a manhunt going on for a wanted criminal while students prepared for a dance this guy broke out of an asylum um what, what was it also the my bloody valentine nope okay the, that guy died in his asylum he got never it. escaped yeah i'm like were... that there was an asylum and okay yeah um new year's evil no think of other movies that we've had with dances what's a famous high school dance uh prom night yeah there you go sadie hawkins <laughs> that's it <laughs> No, that's a great title for a horror film. Sadie Hawkins Dance? Yeah. Perfect. With girls are the killers. They get to ask yeah. who dies. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> when Pam makes it back to the dance hall, she's hit on by Sherry's boyfriend, Mark, and turns him down. He tells her he plans to spike the punch bowl for the dance. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone spike a punch bowl? Oh. Um... Hint, it wasn't alcohol. Yeah, it was when they peed in it. And, oh. um, what was the name of that movie? You're uh, going further back than I Hollywood am. Nights? Yeah. Hollywood Nights, they peed in it. But more recently, a single guy peed in it. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember. Albert P. Ridge. Oh. 
Oh, student bodies. bodies. Oh, Jesus Christ. The sheriff stops by Pat Kingsley's market for supplies on his way out of town. This is the serviceman we saw at the dance that started the film. Kingsley has an employee named Otto who seems drunk, or at least very angry. Pam goes home to see her roommates who try to cheer her up before the dance, since tonight is their last night to see everybody together before they're all brutally murdered. <laughs> I don't think they know that part. She tells her roommate Sherry that she's still worried about the stabber in the neighboring city, even if Mark doesn't seem worried. We see an insert of someone lacing up army boots. Another of Pam's roommates, Lisa, lotions her legs by the window, and yet another roommate, Sally, says that Major Chatham can see her through the window and he'll have another stroke if she's not careful. She sees the man across the street watching her and flashes her breasts at him on purpose. We see a person in army greens stashing knives all over a uniform and zipping it up tight. Pam gets ready for the dance and offers to stay until Sherry is prepared, but Sherry is still taking a shower and tells her to get going without her. We see the shadow of someone walking up the steps towards the girl's dorm, where Sherry is alone taking a shower still. The camera's POV pushes into the bathroom and throws open the shower door to surprise her, but it's not the killer, it's her boyfriend, Carl. Carl offers to join her and tells her to time his undressing. And then takes forever to undress. Yeah. It's like, like, time me, it's like, Okay, and he just starts slowly. But like, also, what is she going to do? Count? <laughs> just count in the shower? She's not actually going to time him. It was just like, uh, I'll be right back. But even still, he's taking, like, is this Yeah, he literally right? takes forever. Yeah. Because before he can get his shirt off, he's grabbed around the neck and stabbed through the top of the head with a huge bayonet. The blade protrudes from his neck and his eyes go white as he drowns in his own blood. Yeah, I didn't know what was happening with his eyes. I think they're supposed to be rolling back in his head. Okay. Or oh. he's getting killed by a scanner. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> yeah. what's happening. I was like, did, I was like, my note is like, did he become a zombie? Yeah. Instant cataracts. <laughs> <laughs> my glaucoma. <laughs> he actually died of glaucoma right before the knife hit him. <laughs> Can glaucoma kill you? If you don't smoke enough pot. The killer pointlessly wipes some of the blood off of his knife before resheathing it. He moves to the bathroom and opens the shower door again to stab Sherry to the wall with a pitchfork. We get a lot of close-ups of this pitchfork jabbed into her naked torso as blood gushes from her mouth and chest. We cut to the dance where someone is slicing a cake. The band performing on stage are a real band named Nowhere Fast, and I don't hate this music. Pam is excited when she notices Deputy London arrive. As he crosses the party to reach her, Mark is intercepted by Pam's roommate Lisa. Another boy, Paul, grabs Pam's butt while she's making herself a cup of punch, and then he spikes the punch bowl. Pam's boyfriend, Mark, seems to be going out of his way to look like he's having fun with Lisa on the dance floor. And then when he gets to Pam, he doesn't understand why she's upset. And it's like, dude, she invited you to the dance, and then you dance with a different girl on the way to her? Yeah, she's going to be upset. Well, then, and then, like, uh, Lisa bumps into right. him, and he spills the punch all over her. Yeah, which it seemed like Lisa was doing on purpose. Two chaperones, Mr. Turner, the allegedly handsy caretaker, and Mrs. Allison, the house mother, make small talk on the sidelines. When Mark finally reaches Pam, Lisa bumps him so that she spills enough punch on Pam's dress that she walks home to change. At the dorms, Pam finds the door forced open. In an insert, we see the killer leave another rose on Sherry's face in the shower. So he's here while yeah. Pam is, which was an editorial afterthought. They, they made the decision in post that they would move the rose placement so that they would indicate that the killer was still in the room when pam was mm. and yet he for some reason does not kill her right yeah he just stays hidden in there ogling pam leaves without noticing her slain roommate but then heads back inside when she forgets her purse and then leaves again oblivious well it thinks nothing of the fact that her 
roommate's been in the shower for like 40 hours. minutes. Yeah. Hour. I, I think she assumes that her roommate is in there screwing her boyfriend. Okay. Because she walks up and she's like, hey, I'm going to close the door. I don't want to see anything. Where before she was like, I want to see everything. Hmm. Are we walking to the party together or not? But right now, her boyfriend's clothes are all over the bed. But so is a lot of his blood. <laughs> <laughs> and that should be uh, concerning. She hears footsteps on the floor above her and notices someone in a strange military outfit with a helmet. She's spooked enough that she starts running full speed and screaming for friends to let her into the other rooms of the dorm. But she can't get through any of the exits either. Like, every single door seems to be glued shut. Yeah. Eventually, she's able to unlock a door and race outside to escape the masked man. Outside, she runs past old man Chatham in his wheelchair, and he grabs a hold of her hand hard. She wrestles with him to get her hand back and eventually drops her scarf and purse on the ground. She crashes into Mark and explains what happened. He tells her to wait in his jeep while he investigates the scene. He finds her purse, but no sign of Chatham. We see the man in the strange military uniform walking through the grass, which to me indicates that one, this is not Mark, and it can't be Major Chatham because he was wearing completely different clothes when he was confined to the wheelchair. Mark continues his search and finds the door to Pam's dorm room locked. We see in an insert that Sherry and her boyfriend Carl are now both dead in the shower. Amazingly, they still have hot water running. I want to move into this place. Well, it's one of those like I'm sure it's like 30 rooms college yeah. dorm room things, so you kind of always have hot water cuz the assumption is there's a lot of people using it. Yeah. Deputy London returns to the Jeep and says that they will drive to Major Chatham's place to see that he made it home okay. The house used for Chatham's home is actually a museum and they would only allow a skeleton crew inside because it came furnished with most of what you see. Obviously not the stuff that they not, break. Not the smashy, smashy yeah. room. <laughs> well, and I don't get what the purposes of going to Major Chatham's at all is. There's no reason. Now, I mean, this is more of a thing for later, I guess. What is the proximity of Chatham's house to this dorm room because they're like when they're changing earlier they're mm -hmm. like he's across the street like literally like 30 feet away like yeah. right. is there from their house is his house right yeah right okay just double checking but this is a big enough building that he's like I guess driving around the block but he says he saw marks from the wheelchair so he right. knows that Chatham was here he doesn't think she's crazy yeah but why would you drive to go find the guy he's a cop they're lazy cops are lazy when they don't get any response at the front door, they sneak into the building through an unlocked window. Deputy London continues calling for Major Chatham inside, and we get an insert of the killer turning his head in costume, suggesting he is here in the building also. Digging through photos in the attic, Pam finds photos of a young Rosemary in a yearbook with a rose flattened into the book like a bookmark. Pam tells Mark that Rose was the girl's nickname, and the killer supposedly left roses on his victims. It can't be a coincidence. Also, the whole time that they're walking around this house... I'm wondering, how does Chatham get around at yeah, all? Yeah, this is not wheelchair accessible. Like, well, that's probably why everything's got like covers on it that's on the second floor. Right, yeah. That's why but, he's so grumpy. But that's the thing. He was in the second floor when we saw him through the window. Oh, that's true, isn't he? And and then or, and there's no ramp at the front door, at least. So it's like, how did he even get out of the house, let alone yeah. get back in? Because he's faking it until he making it. Make it making it. He's <clears throat> faking to walk until he can actually walk? Yeah, that's what you got <laughs> I did the same thing. I convinced my parents I could walk at birth, but I couldn't until I was about four. Or <laughs> She thinks the killer must have been around here and that he might have been the one who chased her earlier. Back at the dance, Paul, the punch spiker, is vomiting in the bathroom. His girlfriend, Lisa, is tired of waiting for him. 
Mark and Pam get Allison, the house mother, to make an announcement warning people about the prowler who chased her. She asks the students to stay in the dance hall until things are sorted. Paul tries to leave, and Allison stops him. Mark ends up having to apprehend the insistent boy. We cut outside where Lisa has decided to go for a swim in her underwear. Just as she surfaces at the edge of the water, she's kicked in the face by a big rubber boot. This is actually Tom Savini wearing a fake boot on his arm, and apparently this took 18 takes to get right. You know, this like to fall in the mud and get kicked in the head by an iron boot. Of course you don't. No one does. It never happens. She struggles to get her bearings back, and when she tries to escape the pool, the costumed prowler rises behind her in the water and slits her throat with his long blade. It's really an incredible effect, and we even get a shot of the bleeding neck slice underwater, and I have no idea how Savini could have pulled this off. We even see a bubble come out of it, and it mm -hmm. looks completely flush with the skin. It's, yeah. it's really awesome. Actress Cindy Weintraub has said that the blood stained her skin red for three days. I'm guessing it's the same formula Savini used on Friday the 13th because Annie actress Robbie Morgan from that film had basically the same complaint, that it dyed her skin, but that Savini knew it would in advance, so they had to get the throat slit right in the first take. He was like, this shirt is dead, you're dead, like we can't use any of this anymore today if we don't get this right, because everything's going to stay red. Sally tells Allison that Lisa snuck out and Allison goes to look for her. Somehow, the chaperone doesn't notice a huge growing cloud of blood in the center of the pool as she walks past it. Sally and her nerdy boyfriend sneak down to the basement together since they aren't allowed to leave. Allison finally notices the blood, and when she makes a run to report it, she is snatched up by the prowler and stabbed hard in the neck. At the jail, Mark has Paul locked up in a cell. He fills out paperwork, charging the boy with disturbing the peace. Sally and her boyfriend have some basement sex while a POV watches them. In a reverse angle, we see that chaperone caretaker Jimmy Turner is the one watching them, and he sloppily licks his lips while he watches. Pat Kingsley storms into the police station to report kids in the cemetery. He's also somewhat upset about the dance taking place again after so many years without one. Mark drives to the cemetery and makes Pam wait in the car again. <laughs> Don't worry, the air conditioning's on and she's listening to her favorite song. It's, it's a Jeep. <laughs> It's too easy to get into, especially if you have a giant bloody bayonet. A camera POV approaches Mark as he wanders between headstones and the deputy finds a large open grave. Apparently this was shot on Halloween night and the hole was not dug for the production and was intended to be filled the following day for a funeral. What? Do you guys recall the last time we saw a space that should be occupied by a dead person, occupied by a living person one day early? Um. What are some places that dead people should be? morgue are we talking about the what was the one we just watched um potter's cove that's the name of the town potter's the, bluff Potter's yeah. Bluff. what was that movie called it's not that movie by the way that oh. movie's called dead and buried it's dead more buried. recent than that more recent than dead and buried but dead and buried had a guy in the in the morgue that wasn't it dead did. yet and he was yeah but i'm talking about something that came out that we covered more recently than that more recently than dead and buried oh oliver Oliver. He's in the coffin. Yeah. Hmm. Who's in there? That coffin should not have been occupied until tomorrow. It's reserved for a very important client. Mark finds a coffin half buried at the bottom of the hole and jumps into it. Now the POV is sneaking up on Mark's Jeep and suddenly Otto from Kingsley's Market is trying to climb into the Jeep and Pam runs screaming for her life. Mark abandons his attempt to open the coffin and collects Pam to bring her back to it. What are you doing? 
These, this isn't children in a cemetery. This is a, this is a coffin at the bottom of a grave. Yeah. Go find the live children that were reported. He jumps in trying to open it again, and they find the body of Lisa inside. Pam starts sobbing immediately. And why? Why is she crying? Her best friend just died. <laughs> you cold, cruel man. It's true. I have no heart. This killer has made no attempt to to really hide any bodies. Yeah, there's no motive to anything this killer does. <laughs> yeah. It's literally just plot. So, it, wait, okay. Because he got her out of the pool, dressed her back up in her clothes. Put her in a coffin. To, wait, took the current body out of the coffin, presumably. Yeah. Right, yeah. Which we'll see later, I guess. Yep. And then put her in. Yeah. And didn't bother to do anything else with it. Correct. Except seal it shut again with some nails because he was really struggling to open that thing. Yeah. <laughs> this is all true. <laughs> Mark realizes from the headstone over the hole that this should be the grave of Rosemary, the victim from the start of the film. Mark calls the lodge where the sheriff is supposedly staying. The man who answers the phone is too lazy to help. <laughs> and so makes sound effects to emulate checking if the sheriff is awake and then pretends to return to the phone. He ain't in his cabin. <laughs> this, is, this is padding for runtime for yeah. sure. The man predicts the sheriff has gone night fishing and agrees to take a message on a paper bag. Yeah, tell him to call Mark London. Tell him to get in touch with me right away. All right. I tell him. Bye. Next, Mark calls the neighboring police department and introduces himself. He gets word that the robber they suspected is no longer on the run. He's been caught. Pam tells Mark that whoever killed Rose must have killed Lisa since they put her in Rose's grave. That doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Mark returns to the dance and sends in Pam to check on everybody. He tells her he's going to leave her here, but she doesn't accept his terms and wordlessly gets back in the Jeep with him. <laughs> like, if they don't come to terms with it where he's like, okay, fine, come with me. She just gets back in the car and they leave together. They uselessly return to Chatham's place. <laughs> Why are you going back here? You've already went here. He's not home. <laughs> We see the Prowler whip out his knife again, and Mark walks up the stairs. No idea why they would split up like this if they think the killer's here. The power goes out in the building, and Mark assumes the house blew a fuse, and he moves to check. Do you guys recall yes. the last time that we saw a guy offering to check the fuse on a powerless house? Uh, that was dead and buried That's as well. That's correct, <laughs> yeah. The Prowler pops out and knocks Mark unconscious on his way to the fuse box, and suddenly the power comes back on. Pam notices a gold locket hanging in the fireplace and tries to investigate it. When she reaches above the necklace into the chimney, a full corpse drops into view. Based on the state of decay, I'd guess this is Rosemary's corpse clogging up the chimney for some reason. <laughs> like, you took the body out of the coffin and then jammed it in the chimney like a reverse Santa Claus? Yeah, see, what are you doing? See, I, th I think it was more extreme than that. I think he stuffed her down from the top of the chimney, and that's just as far as the you body made it. stuffed her down, or he just dropped her in? <laughs> just dropped her in, that's as far. So, like, leave some presents. She, she hit the flue on the way down, and that's where she got caught up and just the necklace was dangling down mm -hmm. into view she tries to run from the room and crashes headlong into the prowler holding out a rose for her and she hears his first words in the film he drops the rose and whips out the bayonet again to follow her around the house upstairs she hides behind furniture draped in blankets and eventually hides under a bed the killer swings his pitchfork around the room stabbing at and destroying everything in reach except the one place she has chosen to hide there's suddenly a huge rat right next to her on the floor. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a final girl hiding under a bed, then startled by a large passing rat? 
Is that the unseen? No. Student bodies? No, it's further back, and she pisses herself because she's so scared of the rat. You see a puddle coming out from under the bed. Was that Friday the 13th Part 2? Correct. Pam sprints through the door to escape the prowler, and he jams the pitchfork in the door before she can close it. She wrestles with the weapon for a moment, and the head just comes off in her hand. Yeah, like, she's the cheapest fucking pitchfork. How did you kill anyone with this? Or, or she's got that, like, crazy adrenaline strength right. where she's just, like, totally like, ah! She's, like, lifting a car off of her baby. She just pulls a pitchfork apart. She stands and points the prongs of the pitchfork at the prowler. That's hard to say. <laughs> Do you guys recall the last time we saw a blonde Amy Steele-looking actress defend herself by pointing the head of a pitchfork toward the camera's POV at the climax of a slasher film? Last time it Deadly was a full blessings? pitchfork. No? No. That seems like a movie that would have like a pitchfork there would be in it. In there. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Hittites. Was that what they were called in that movie? Yeah, that sounds right. Um, What's that word? Hittites. Was there was there a pitchfork in student bodies? No. no. I don't know. Friday the 13th part 2. No. Oh yeah, they were up in the cabin. They were like upstairs in the pitchfork thing and Well, that was the first part and he stabs the people through the back, but then at the end of the movie she's defending herself after he busts through the window. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she's using the same pitchfork that yeah. they had upstairs, yeah. The prowler swipes at Pam with the bayonet, but suddenly Otto appears in the doorway with a shotgun and fires it at the killer who drops like a stone. (laughs) We see him crumpled on the floor and the music turns happy as Pam and Otto stare each other down and suddenly the prowler empties a sawed-off shotgun into Otto's chest as revenge. (laughs) Pam plunges the pitchfork into the prowler's back and they fight over the shotgun for a bit. The prowler's having trouble breathing, (laughs) as you might. (laughs) And he takes off... Does he take off the mask or does she? He does. He, 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 like, I don't even know how he was seeing to begin with. Right. Like there's so much stuff all, all over his face. Well, right. Cause it's like, it's, it's not really a mask. It more looks like, you know, when it's you, like he's zipped a hoodie well, all the yeah, way down. Well, yeah, when you take your hoodie and you tighten it so tight that you just, you don't have any face left. Yeah. <laughs> you just want to look like well, a minion with one eyeball. It, it's like, it's like the neck of, of the jacket, like zipped yeah. all the way up. Yeah. But, uh, when he pulls off this, hood slash mask thing we see that it's sheriff george frazier no longer on his fishing trip who by the way does not appear in the 40s sequence of the film no nor is he referenced nor is any motivation for why he's doing this ever even is he not the guy that she rosemary wrote the letter to presumably he is we just never made that actual connection but she didn't say george at the top of the letter well yeah that would have been a spoiler well it could have also been the Georgie that they're talking about when they walk up to the party where he says, oh, you didn't hear Georgie and so-and-so broke up. Like, I feel like the only reason that line is in there is because this letter originally said George at the top. Yeah. And they wanted to throw you off the scent of the sheriff. Pam forces the shotgun under the sheriff's chin and pulls the trigger, exploding his head. As with Maniac earlier this year, Tom Savini filled a latex head with fake blood and leftover lunch items and fired through it with an actual shotgun. They quickly dissolve from the exploded head to the next morning, and Mark brings Pam back to the dorm, where she finally finds Sherry and Carl in the shower. When she gets too close, Carl, still with white eyes rolled back in his head, grabs Pam and holds on tight, but she manages to pull herself away, and we fade to black for credits, which start red and then suddenly fade to yellow as they scroll. Yeah, I I made a note of that as well. So what? <laughs> well, yeah, he, he reaches for her and she backs away. But then the camera just lingers on her at first scared, but then kind of like has like this weird look of satisfaction on her face. Yeah. Like, like 
Yeah. I was like... So did that happen? Or was she imagining it? I don't think it did. I think that was a dream sequence thing. I know that we needed like a final jump scare, I guess, at the end, but I don't... This doesn't make any sense to me because he's not alive. No, it has the same problems that the end of Friday the 13th has and Friday the 13th Part 2 has where you're just like, is that really how it ended or was that a dream? Or like, I guess it was technically the moment was inspired by the jump scare at the end of Carrie, mm-hmm. which is the same case for the Friday the 13th Jason coming out of the lake was a jump scare from Carrie that Tom yeah. Savini said we needed something like that where the hand comes out of the grave right? inexplicably. And that's never explained in Carrie, just like it's never explained in Full Moon High. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, why is a hand coming out of the grave and then we never come back to that? Um, so presumably all of those are dream sequences. So so how many people are killed in the quote unquote present day? It's Sherry and Carl, Lisa, Lisa in the pool, and yeah. then the, the teacher. Then the teacher. Right? That's just those four? Um, well, then Otto, I guess, later. But I mean, what? He kept Sherry's body where it lie. Right. But then he hanged Carl by the shower head. Yeah. Yeah. And then got Lisa out of the pool, dressed her back in her clothes, and then laid her in the coffin of Rosemary, whose then body he stole and shoved in a chimney. Yeah. <laughs> and then we just never come back to what he did with the teacher's body, I guess. Which yeah. teacher? The, the teacher well, the, that came to find oh, Lisa. Oh, the, the Allison that gets stabbed in the neck. Yeah, the, yeah. Or I guess, I guess maybe she's like the den mother or the yeah, yeah, yeah. house mother. We also never uh, conclude where Chatham ended up because yeah. he was like he was outside the house when the killer was there, and then he That's seemed it. not to make it home. We never see him again yeah. for the rest of the movie. Yeah. So presumably he was also killed by now, the guy, but we never see where his body ended up. Chatham is that. Is he related to Rosemary? He's the father of Rosemary. He's the father of Rosemary. Okay. Okay. Which is why he was the one who said, you can't have dances anymore because my daughter got killed. Right. Okay. Even though she got killed at a gazebo by a church way far away from the dance. Yeah. Had nothing to do with the dance. In fact, if they'd all stayed at the dance, everything would have been fine. Or they all would have died. One of those two. Anyway, that's the Prowler. (laughs) Solid. Um, rock solid. Rock guys. solid movie. Everything <laughs> made sense. No, it just seems like they were kind of making it up as they went along. Yeah. And uh, they didn't have a killer figured out when they were writing it and just picked someone randomly. I think basically once they landed Farley Granger, they were like, okay, you're the most famous person. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be the killer, but we only have you for two days. So one day you're going to be saying, I'm leaving town. And the other day you're going to be saying, I was the killer the whole time. <laughs> taking your mask off but the rest of the movie you don't have to be here yeah i mean logically the killer should have been mark right or jimmy turner mm. the the caretaker who they show at in the beginning flashback yeah. moment being kind of handsy with one of the kids specifically rosemary right before she gets killed but yeah they set up so many red herrings that work better than the actual killer mm-hmm. That it's that it's like, oh, well, that was very clever of you because I never would have suspected this person who had no motivation. Yeah. Well, because cause Mark goes, Pam sends Mark to go check on Sherry and Carl. Yeah. And he so he goes in there to do that, but then he doesn't investigate the room. Right. right. He goes into the room and goes, well, they're not here, even though I hear water running. Yeah. Well, the, the door was locked. He yeah, he doesn't in. go inside. So, but he also locked. doesn't go down and be like, hey, the door's locked. Can I have your key? I or, couldn't get in there. I didn't yeah. want to break it down in case she's okay. Yeah. But yeah, 
literally any male character in this whole movie could have been the one she wrote that letter to. <laughs> like there, there's no reason that George is singled out as like, it could have been a letter to Otto and we find it out at the end. Yeah. yeah Otto's the yeah. killer. And any, any character who could conceivably have been alive right. in 1945 or whenever the dance took place. But that's the end of our film. That's the prowler. <laughs> Why did Meh. he take her corpse now? Well, I don't, Rosemary's I don't Mary's corpse. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't get what the dance has to do with anything. I, I get why Chatham doesn't want the dance. Yeah. But why why did the dance trigger this in the sheriff? Shouldn't the sheriff have been killing college students this whole time? You would think. Because I'm sure that they had other events. It's not like they never had well, any other kind of social events. Or maybe it just it brought back the, the memories and, mm-hmm. and just stirred that in him again. Because it seemed like he was accusing the women he was killing of being rosemary right. so like he had like snapped or something yeah it's very bachelor-esque to leave roses on all of them <laughs> i also think it's weird that any city in the on the planet would cancel a dance for 35 years because yeah. two kids died and so, off campus and, and there's so many great opportunities like if you want the sheriff to be the killer have pam break up with mark inside the police station and the sheriff hears it and yeah. that like triggers him like yeah. just like this jilting this like nice young man uh who and, reminds him of himself who, yeah who, who, and she's she's dumping him for him being too busy doing his duty as a yeah. police officer yeah you know because yeah because the sheriff obviously liked him enough to not kill him that's true he knocked him out though yeah he knocks him out but he doesn't kill him yeah interesting because he he clearly will kill other male characters i mean I mean, I, I guess Otto would be a situational where he needed to defend himself, but uh, he killed Carl and and presumably killed Chatham. Yeah, um, I would say that if anyone else had done these visual effects, this is an easy thumbs down for me. But Tom Savini's work here is so cool. The exploding head looks great. The stab through the skull looks great, and the the throat slit underwater is worth the price of admission to check out. Yeah. But that's all of like thirty seconds of this film. I I, I do really like the the stab through the head really got me. I was like, that's a that's that was unexpected and Yeah, and and I was looking for seams and stuff on the pitchfork stab in the shower too. That looks great. I think it's it's literally just squirting out of the pitchfork. The blood is squirting out of the pitchfork. But it looks really good. Um, yeah, I mean I agree with you. The effects are good, but it doesn't make me want to give it a thumbs up. There's too many dumb plot like there isn't really a plot yeah Yeah. there's not really yeah it's a thumbs down it's a thumbs down for me as well it uh effects aside uh because they were great and they did genuinely when when she's cutting into the meat the neck meat yeah and and you're just seeing the the flesh kind of peeling away like oh boy that's that's some good stuff um but yeah no i'll never I, uh, oddly enough, I would say I would never watch this film again, but this is the second time I've seen it. Yeah. What? Really? Um, I well, it's because it's the Joe Bob Briggs presentation. Well, th- right? I, that's how I watched it this go around. I watched my Joe Bob Briggs version, but I had a friend who recommended to watch this. And we watched it together, and I can't remember who it was. Why would anyone recommend this to you? Exactly. No, that's <laughs> of all exactly people. I probably don't know you very well. well <laughs> and then I was like, I'm trying to think, because like, I thought for sure... It was one person I talked to him about it. I said, no, I don't even like that movie. It's yeah. like, it's like I, I, it's, whenever it, something like this happens where I'm watching this and in the first like 
15 minutes someone gets stabbed through the top of the head and they're bleeding out of their mouth and their eyes i'm like ugh, i feel bad for making richard watch this <laughs> i would never be like let's do this as our random tuesday night movie like just sit down and watch this this is just gonna make richard super uncomfortable uh, well thank you uh, <laughs> I, I appreciate that you take me into account um i don't do that for you no, of course not. <laughs> but i no. also don't squirm for anything really um but yeah so it's funny like but uh, this is the second time I've watched it. Um, but uh, Joe Bob made it more tolerable. Tolerable, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, do we know where this is going, Letterbox, Jess? Oh, it's not. It's not super high. I can tell you that. Um, I have it at one twenty-five of one thirty-nine. It is below Hell Night and above Home Sweet Home. All right, Richard. Um, I have it at one thirty-two. Uh, which puts it below secondhand hearts, but above Maniac. Okay, right next to Maniac. Though. Yeah. I have it in 91st, which is just under SOB and right above Savage Harvest. Our director here was Joseph Zito. He previously directed Lawrence Tierney in Abduction and Blood Rage. On the strength of this film, he was hired to direct Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter. Then he helms Chuck Norris Cannon Flicks Missing in Action and Invasion USA, and then Dolph Lundgren vehicle Red Scorpion. The first writer, Glenn Leopold, was a writer for Scooby-Doo, Snorks, Jetsons, Smurfs, Pirates of Darkwater, Biker Mice from Mars, and Doug, and this. <laughs> <laughs> and the other writer, Neil Barbera, as the name Barbera might suggest, was also a Scooby writer. Yeah. He came back three years later for his second and last horror outing with co-writer Glenn Leopold, too scared to scream, but he is the son of Joe Barbera, co-founder of Hanna-Barbera. See, th- now now it kind of makes sense, them wandering around the house forever, because I could just see them, like, Scooby and Shaggy running out of a door and the Prowler running behind them, but yeah. then the Prowler running from one door to the next and the yeah. Scooby and Shaggy running out of the door. The Benny Hill scene. Yeah. But it, it is uh, also interesting that, you know, you have the scene at the end where they, they unmask the killer. It's the same as a Scooby-Doo episode, really. Additional dialogue was provided by Eric Leewold who also wrote for Rescue Rangers, Tailspin, Darkwing Duck, Beetlejuice, Gargoyles, Mummies Alive, and the 2007 Ninja Turtles series. This is bizarre. It's a bizarre group of writers here. Mark Edward Edens provided additional, additional dialogue. He wrote for Real Ghostbusters, Camp Candy, Rescue Rangers, Beetlejuice, the OG Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, X-Men the Animated Series, Disney's Doug, and Hercules. All great shows. And then the last additional dialogue credit was for Michael Edens, who wrote for Beetlejuice and Mummies Alive. And the writing credit for Sarah Higgins was just that one letter, Rose Chatham's letter at the beginning of the film. That's all she wrote. It's her only <laughs> IMDb credit. Sorry. Murder, she didn't write. The music here came from Richard Einhorn. He previously composed Shockwaves, Don't Go in the House, and Eyes of a Stranger. Uh, Shockwaves and Eyes of a Stranger, both Ken Wiederhorn movies, so... That explains that. I think we actually see footage of Shockwaves in Eyes of a Stranger. That's the Nazi zombie movie that they're watching on the TV before mm. they get killed. Later, he scores Tales from the Dark Side and a different movie called Blood Rage, not Josito's Blood Rage. The cinematographer here was Zhao Fernandez. He also lit Josito's Blood Rage and earlier on the show, The Nesting. Later, he lights Children of the Corn, Friday the 13th for the final chapter, Missing in Action, and Invasion USA for Zito, and later still, Sidekicks and eight episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger. So he connected with Chuck Norris Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, those are Chuck Norris. The editor, Joel Goodman, comes back to cut Friday the 13th and Missing in Action for Zito, and later The Abyss, House Party 2, Lawnmower Man 2, and Christmas Vacation 2. 
Tom Savini did the gore effects. Before this, he did Martin and Dawn of the Dead. We've seen his work so far in Friday the 13th. Effects, Maniac, Eyes of a Stranger, and The Burning. He was hired on the strength of his work in Maniac, which coincidentally starred Joe Spinell as Frank Zito, whose names combined to form Joe Zito, the director of this film. Zito brought Savini back to the Friday the 13th series with him for the fourth installment, and Savini considers this film to be his best work. Really? But I might go with The Burning. I think that raft sequence is fucking incredible. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, he has a lot of good stuff here, but I think in terms of the craftsmanship, there's like three minutes of The Burning that are the most amazing gore effects in any of the 80s that we've seen so far. Yeah. I might not like the whole movie, but that scene is really great. Vicki Dawson played Pam McDonald. We just had her as the stepsister of Denzel Washington in Carbon Copy. Christopher Goutman played Mark London. Later, he worked mostly as a producer of soap operas, in particular 348 Another Worlds and 1665 As the World Turnses. Lawrence Tierney played Major Chatham. He started his career in the 40s with credits in Dillinger, The Greatest Show on Earth, Naked City. We saw him earlier this season as the diner customer who won't shut up in Arthur. Have you been poor? Most people are poor. Eat your roll! <laughs> After that, he shows up in Star Trek TNG, House 3. He is Elaine's father on Seinfeld and was famously never asked back after jokingly threatening to stab Jerry on the set, and his career had something of a resurgence after he was employed by Quentin Tarantino in Reservoir Dogs. He's also Don Brodka on The Simpsons. Yeah. <laughs> I had to rewatch that whole scene. It was like, it was like they weren't home, uh-huh. So I left him a message. That's right. <laughs> Apparently, um, The Simpsons said he was like one of the weirdest guest stars they've ever had. And Quentin Tarantino also said he was never going to work with him again. While they were making Reservoir Dogs, he got in a drunken argument with his nephew and shot at him. <laughs> Lawrence Tierney shot at his own nephew. And then I was looking at the rest of his career, and the last film that he made was in 1999, and it was directed by the nephew that he was shooting at <laughs> while he was making Reservoir Dogs with Quentin Tarantino. But Quentin was like, never working with him again. <laughs> Completely intolerable. <laughs> Farley Granger played Sheriff George Frazier. He's Guy Haynes, the protagonist of Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train. He's Major Harryman in They Call Me Trinity. And they managed to get him on board because he was taking a class with one of the film's investors' wives. And she was like, oh, my husband's making a horror movie right now. You should totally talk to him. And they were like, can you, can you shoot this weekend? We'll get you in and out in eight hours. You'll do your whole part. Cindy Weintraub played Lisa. We saw her last year as Carol Hill in Humanoids from the Deep. Lisa Dunsheath played Sherry. She's back later this season, and they all laughed as tulips. David Cedarholm played Carl. He's credited as Sunglasses in The Hunt for Red October, and he was also Coma Guy on Friends. Tom Bray played Ben. I don't even know who Ben was. He played Ethenson in Prince of Darkness, Hodges in Deep Star 6, Peter Campbell in House 3, The Horror Show, and he voiced Howie in a couple episodes of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. He also worked with Jesse on Leverage, Season 4, Episode 17, The Radio Job. I don't, I don't remember that. <laughs> Brian England played Paul. I didn't recognize other credits, but I was curious if he was any relation to Robert England, since they both spell it with a U, and so I looked up his biography, and his mom is Cloris Leachman. <laughs> but he's not related to Robert England at all. He also passed away at the age of 30 from an accidental overdose of ulcer meds, oh, which yeah. is very unfortunate. Joy Glackham, or Glassam, played Frances Rosemary Chatham. She was Susie McKenzie in The Children last season. 
Dan Lounsbury played Jimmy Turner. He was Simpson in Crocodile Dundee and a senior citizen in Mannequin. Ralph Garman played a 1945 party extra. I know Ralph Garman best from when he did the movie news on K-Rock's Kevin and Bean Morning Show. He's a good friend of Kevin Smith and Seth MacFarlane, who have kept him fairly regularly employed since he left K-Rock, including a lot of podcast co-hosting and playing Mark Wahlberg's dad in the Ted movies. But one of my favorite things Ralph Garman ever did was actually a reality show parody called The Joe Schmo Show about a bunch of people asked to live in a house together, but the entire cast of the show were scripted characters except for one contestant who didn't realize that he was competing <laughs> for a million dollars with just himself. It was set up so that he would win. Garmin was the host of the Joe Schmo show, and other people posing as contestants were a pre-SNL Kristen Wiig and a pre-Always Sunny David Hornsby. But it's actually a really great show. And the guy that they got, uh, Matthew, uh, what was his name? I didn't write it down. I think it's Matthew Kennedy Gould or something like that. And uh, he's just a really sweet guy. Mm. And he's like really like thoughtful and kind to everybody. And he makes like some dumb mistakes. But over the course of the show, all the people feel bad that they're scripting this thing around him and picking on him because they thought it'd be funnier. And so at the end, it's just really sweet. And he's very nice when he finds out the secret that this was all planned around him. But uh, Ralph Garman also shows up in the recent Samurai Cop 2 Starring the star of Samurai Cop, which we just watched recently. Pretty wonderful. Peter Giuliano played the Prowler. He has a producer credit on Toys, Sleepers, and Sphere. And for the more effects-heavy shots, the Prowler's actually played by Tom Savini himself. And, of course, when it comes to the unmasking scene, it's Farley Granger in the costume. I think that's everything for the Prowler. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got That's right, it's a new patron, Jen Seeley. As a $5 patron of the show, Jen now has access to 37 full-size 70s reviews, 40 minisodes from 1980, and a hand in choosing next month's film. For March of 1973, $5 patrons are choosing between the following 12 titles. The Baby. Ted Post's psychological thriller about a brain-damaged 21-year-old man raised as a perpetual infant by a family of psychopaths and the social worker sent to investigate them. Did we watch this one? We did. We did watch this one. I remember this one. Black Snake. Russ Meyer's lone blaxploitation effort about a man who travels to the West Indies in the early 1800s to find his missing brother held as a slave on a plantation. It stars Anuska Hempel, David Warbeck, Percy Herbert, and Thomas Baptiste. The Crazies, George A. Romero's sci-fi horror film about a small town ravaged by a military bioweapon that makes people go violently insane. It stars Lane Carroll, W.G. McMillan, and Harold Wayne Jones. Five Fingers of Death, a.k.a. King Boxer, a Zhang Changhua martial arts film about a tournament between martial arts schools sullied by cheating and the attempted assassination of one of the best fighters. Sounds a lot like Duel to the Death, which we'll get to in a few years. Godspell, David Green's feature film adaptation of an off-Broadway musical retelling of the Gospel of St. Matthew starring Victor Garber as Jesus Christ in his feature film debut. There'll be a lot of singing if we get that one. Yep. <laughs> Wait, do you do you know Godspell well? I don't. Oh, okay. Then I guess it'll have to be me. Don't pick that one, guys. I'm not a good singer. <laughs> Godzilla vs. Megalon. 
Jun Fukuda's kaiju film pitting Godzilla against Megalon with appearances from Gigan and Jet Jaguar. It stars Katsuhiko Sasaki, Hiroyuki Kawasi, Yutaka Hayashi, and Robert Dunham. The Long Goodbye. Robert Altman's satirical noir adaptation of Raymond Chandler's 1953 Philip Marlowe novel of the same name, with a script from Lee Brackett, and appearances from Elliot Gould, Nina Van Pallant, Sterling Hayden, and a very, very early turn from bodybuilder and Mr. Universe Arnold Schwarzenegger. Lost Horizon. Charles Jarrett's musical adaptation of Frank Capra's 1937 adaptation of James Hilton's 1933 fantasy adventure novel of the same name, about the passengers of a hijacked plane that crash lands in an undiscovered utopian Shangri-La in the Himalayas. It stars Peter Finch, Liv Ullman, Sally Kellerman, George Kennedy, Michael York, Olivia Hussey, Bobby Van, James Shigeta, and John Gilgood. Wow. I feel like there's several on this list we're going to have to just watch anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Slither. Howard Zeef comedy from a W.D. Richter script about a convict competing with others to locate a stash of stolen money. It stars James Caan, Peter Boyle, Sally Kellerman again, Louise Lasser, and Alan Garfield. Theater of Blood. Douglas Hickox's British horror comedy about an actor taking revenge on his critics. Starring Vincent Price, Diana Rigg, and Ian Hendry. Tom Sawyer. Don Taylor's musical adaptation of Mark Twain's 1876 novel, it stars Johnny Whitaker, Celeste Holm, Warren Oates, Jeff East, and Jodie Foster, and finally, The Vault of Horror, Roy Ward Baker's British anthology horror film composed of five scary stories told by men trapped in an office basement. It stars Terry Thomas, Kerr Jurgens, Tom Baker, Don Adams, Denham Elliott, and Daniel Massey, each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversary this coming March. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Rich and Famous, which IMDb describes like so. Liz and Mary become BFFs in college. A decade later, Liz is a serious writer with writer's block, and Mary is a homemaker and a mom who's written a novel. Other bestsellers, riches, and fame follow. We leave you now with a trailer for Rich and Famous. All my life, I've wanted men to find something mysterious and seductive in my work. <sighs> Me too. Now let them find the poetry in my body. From the very beginning, Liz and Mary knew they'd be friends to the end. Next time we meet, I'm going to be a married lady. What do you think? I'm going to be an unmarried lady. <laughs> what they didn't count on was everything in between. Help me greet Liz Hamilton. I'm so proud of the way you turned yourself out. I mean, what do I do? I just sit here and sew like my grandmother and kiss my husband goodbye on his way to work. All the good things happen to you. Handsome husband, a beautiful little girl, and you know how to sew. MGM presents Jacqueline Bissett and Candace Bergen in Rich and Famous, the story of two women who knew exactly what kind of lives they wanted, each other's. This is a novel. How wonderful. What's wrong with me writing a book? Makes you so jealous, huh? If I had to become a glider pilot, you'd be behind the wheel of a 747 by now. Are you not drinking? Uh, not this trip, thanks. you wanted to have finished without me i'm sick and tired of you trying to live your life through my skin if i had your skin i'd take better care of it i wish i understood you two well you know the secret we don't my girls <laughs> well some of these movie folk here knew your name they are all rich and famous you're just famous that's harder to do chris adams liz hamilton 
You want to do it down here or go up to your room? Do what? You are in love. You sly old land turtle. <laughs> Does sex confuse you? No. It's a scene from one of your books, Mary Noel. That ain't stupid. It's just trash. Successful trash! How many men have you had? Three sailors and a jockey, but never your husband. You know what the end of my fantasy is? No, darling. Mary divorces me, and you forget Please. all about being her friend. I think we have come to a serious juncture in our lives when we should examine the terms of our friendship. What astonishes me is that you have no idea why I truly hate you at this point. <laughs> it's not because of your jealousy over my work. Some friendships can survive anything. <laughs> Even being rich and famous. Jacqueline Bissett, Candace Bergen, rich and famous. <laughs>